Welcome to It's Who You Know, the podcast, bridging the gap between Jewish leaders and those who follow them. Gain insight from Jewish professionals who make the decisions that influence your Jewish world. Welcome to It's Who You Know, the podcast. This is your host, Michelle W. Malkin. And my guest today is Nancy Kaufman, who is the Chief Executive Officer of the National Council of Jewish Women, or NCJW, which is a grassroots organization of volunteers and advocates who turn progressive ideas into action. Kaufman has had a distinguished career as a public servant, advocate, and nonprofit leader. Prior to joining NCJW, she served as the executive director of the Jewish Community Relations Council of Boston for 20 years. There, she led the social justice, Israel advocacy, and governmental affairs agenda for Boston's Jewish Federation and its agencies. She has also held a variety of positions related to health and human services delivery in state and local government and in the nonprofit sector including being the founding executive director of a community action agency and working as deputy director of the governor's office of social policy, assistant secretary of health and human services, and deputy commissioner of the welfare department for the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. Among other honors, she's received an award for greatest contribution to social policy from the National Association of Social Workers in 1980, the Alumni Achievement Award from Brandeis University in 2002, and the Woman of Valor Award in 2007 from the Jewish Funds for Justice. I've asked Nancy on the program today, in addition to hearing about her varied career experiences, because we've been hearing a lot from larger advocacy-related Jewish organizations in our orbit, like ADL, JDC, and AJWS. What is unique about NCJW is their focus on organizing Jewish women, and I'm excited to hear about this work from a woman's perspective, thinking about the challenges and rewards of gender-specific work in our current political climate. So thank you so much for joining us on the program today, Nancy. Nice to be here. Thank you for having me. Wonderful. So we'll begin as we always do. I gave a little bit of your information on how you got into this position, but I'd love to hear about the journey in your own words. Well, I spent the first half of my career, as you mentioned, working in anti-poverty and social justice work in the secular world at the local and state level. And in 1990, when Mike Dukakis wasn't going to Washington and I wasn't going to Washington because he didn't get elected president, I knew that I had worked for local government, state government. I had worked in nonprofit. An opportunity came together to work in the Jewish community, which I had never done. I saw it as an opportunity to basically take my Jewish values and turn them into action put my faith into action. I was certainly a member of the Jewish community, strongly held beliefs, Jewish values, but I had always worked using those values in the general community. I've never worked for the organized Jewish community. When the opportunity came along to become head of the Jewish Community Relations Council, I sought that out. And what I saw there was as the spokesperson for the organized Jewish community, the Federation and its agencies, an opportunity to reinvigorate the largely suburban Jewish community to its urban roots. Having grown up a child of the 60s, I was someone who truly believed in the importance of putting our faith into action. And yet, you know, in my work, always found myself embarrassed sometimes because the voices of the Christian and 
Catholic and communities were very strong, and the Jewish voice didn't seem to be quite as strong, at least at that time in Massachusetts. So given the opportunity to organize the Jewish community to be more engaged in issues of social justice, I saw that as a calling and my mission and something that I was interested in seeing if I could make happen. So that was with that spirit that I, in 1990, started working in the Jewish community as JCRC director. I often say to people that I expected to be there for four years and go back into a democratic administration in Massachusetts, but it took 17 years for that to happen. And I got basically hooked on being a Jewish communal professional. What I had the opportunity to do in Boston was really create a model. I was teamed with the Charismatic Federation Executive Director, Barry Schrag, who had come to the Federation three years before from Cleveland. And as we were known to say in later years, he was Torah and I was justice. He believed in serious Jewish education, Jewish continuity, but we made an agreement when I started that you couldn't have Torah without justice and you couldn't have justice without Torah. And so I became the justice part of that equation. And he, as the head of the Federation, we were an independent agency, but as head of the Federation, he was the Jewish prophecy of what it would mean to have a community committed to Torah, justice, and tzedakah, charity, tzedakah, justice, and Torah. So that's what I did. And I built a model that was, became a model for the country of doing work in an interfaith way across religions, working with the gateways in our Jewish community the synagogues, the day schools, Jewish institutions, the Jewish service agencies, and organizing them to be sort of a force for change. We introduced the Jewish voice on Beacon Hill and that, the state capitol and hired a Jewish lobbyist to lobby on behalf of the Jewish community, but around issues that we were concerned about for all people. So I worked that for 20 years and kind of was happily ensconced in my hometown of Boston and minding my business and I got a call from a headhunter who said, I have a job with your name on it. And I said, oh, well, what might that be? And she said, the CEO of the National Council of Jewish Women. And I said, oh, I'm not really looking for a job right now. You know, I'm <laughs> right. kind of happy here. And she said, well, you really have to look at the job description. So I looked at the job description and, you know, it was pretty unbelievable. Women, social justice, you know, organizing, good issues, progressive. She called me the next day and I said, but I need to have Israel in my life. She said, oh, they have Israel. I said, you know, and I knew NCJW because I was involved with them nationally, you know, in terms of national uh, advocacy and policy work. And I always very much respected the women that would stand at the microphone at our national meetings but I didn't really know that they had an Israel piece. And she said, yes, they don't work on the geopolitical, which was just fine with me. They work on civil society issues, advancing gender equality and, you know, democracy. I said, okay, then that's cool, because that's really what my strongest feelings are around those issues. So I threw my hat in the ring, and the rest is history. It was a several-month process. I really wasn't sure I'd even take it. I wasn't sure I was ready to leave Boston and move to New York. But I'm very glad I did. That was seven and a half years ago. I feel like I've been able to bring this organization, which was sort of a sleeper in a lot of ways. And NCJW just historically was 125 years old this year, but it was an organization for years. It was sort of your mother's, your grandmother's. It was That's how it was perceived. It was the place that smart Jewish women who didn't work out of the home, but weren't really interested in fundraising, would go in order to be engaged in serious policy work. 
That's the only way I could describe it. And as I read through the history and the autobiography of our founder, Hannah G. Solomon, who was a real visionary, doesn't get the credit that Henrietta Zoll gets, but she was a truly a visionary in 1893. And she said her vision at the time was that we have to recognize the logical and limitless potentialities, is what she was quoted, of having an organization of Jewish women that would be dedicated to correcting social injustice and combating the lack of humanism. That was her vision. That was in 1893. That was 10 years before Hadassah was formed. That was two years before the first federation in the United States was formed. Probably the only other organization of record at the time was Reform Judaism. But this was a visionary leader who really saw the work of in those times, she was basically organizing her fellow fairly well-to-do Jewish women to help new immigrants coming into the country. What evolved was, you know, a network at that time of over 200 over a period of years, uh, different what she called sections that were independent organizations. And that had a combination, did work in community service, advocacy, and community education. And we've been pretty much true to that mission for 125 years. It's pretty amazing. This is an organization that hasn't had to reinvent itself because we actually have transcended the passage of time and have been on the cutting edge of probably every progressive social movement in this country since then. Well, that's wonderful. I have a quick question about your work at JCRC. Does that still exist in the Boston area? Yes, yes. My successor has taken it from where I left it and built it. It's still an independent 513 organization, different than a lot of communities across the country. Country who federations sort of absorb many of the JCRCs, but it's still independent, still its own board, still doing great work. And I'm you know, really proud of what I built there. Yeah, I get the sense that there used to be a lot more around the country. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I wanted to see if you had any perspective on that, whether within federations or standalone, it seems like that's an area of work that at least over the last you know 10 to 15 years, if not longer, has become less important for communities to be doing. It's a sad phenomenon. It's a phenomenon that we bucked the tide in Boston and everyone used to kid, well, that's Boston. I said, well, there's no reason why everywhere couldn't be Boston. I would say Boston, San Francisco, to some extent, Baltimore, Indianapolis. It's interestingly strong pockets of JCRCs that still exist. I think the independent ones have done very well where they've been able to, you know, LA once had an independent one, Philadelphia did, they know what right. to do. But where they've been able to allow to really do what they do best, which is to represent the Jewish community in the non-Jewish world and be a voice for our values, they have thrived. Boston's JCRC has thrived. And it thrived because we became the basically activation, the actualization of the values of the Jewish world. When I came in, I knew you talk to most Jews and they care deeply about social justice. Look at right. that's held up by the Pew study. It's held up by the way we vote. We do care deeply. I think the big change that happened was, and I wrote an article actually, ironically, in 2000, it was before 9-11 and before the Intifada in Israel, second Intifada. And the article was called Recapturing Our Soul, A Vision for Community Relations in the Next Century. And it was for the Jewish Communal Service Journal. You can look it up. And basically talking about, hey, you know, look at who we are as Jews. We've made it. We're a fairly new immigrant community that's made it in America. 
What is our responsibility now? Anti-Semitism has decreased. Israel's going to be in peace. It's a visionary. (laughs) Right. It was visionary. It was hopeful, you know, uh, optimistic visionary. We have the opportunity to no longer be the best kept secret in town, but to use everything we've learned as an amazingly successful immigrant community and work to partner with our colleagues in other communities and other racial and ethnic communities and help them do the same. And in fact, you know, I had an experience being in a very high level group in Boston. It was a persistent poverty project that was funded by the Rockefeller Foundation. And there were 40 of us over two and a half years who came up with a vision for Boston, for the city of Boston, what it could look like. We had these fishbowl exercises, and one of my colleagues from the African-American community at one point, and it really stuck with me for many years, still sticks with me, was sort of in this fishbowl with other African-American leaders. And she turned and looked at me, and she said, listen, folks, when the Jewish community was closed out of all the institutions in this city, what did they do? They built institutions for Jews that are now giving back to the whole community. And, you know, you look at Brandeis University, Jewish Family Children's Service, all these different institutions, housing for the elderly, all of those institutions with the J word in them, Jewish vocational service, are all now serving Jews and a lot of other people and a lot of different Mm -hmm. groups. And I thought to myself, why have we been the best kept secret in town? Why is it that we as a Jewish community have like been so insulated? so afraid of the external, quote, anti-Semitism or, you know, that we've kept all this to ourselves. So I kind of made it my decision. I made a decision that day that I was going to share our wealth and resources with all these other communities and started to do that in a very systematic way. And, you know, wanted to be partners, not patrons. It wasn't about money. It was about, you know, if we can run a program through Jewish Vocational Service for Russian single heads of household who have new immigrants to Boston area. Why can't we do the same and partner with a black church or a black institution to do it for single heads of household in the African-American? So we started doing it. We just started doing it. We started like taking what we knew and what we learned and sharing it. And you know what? It was incredibly well-received. So we became real partners with people in the inner city And then we started organizing synagogues. You know, they all had social action committees, as you well know, on the books. But many of them weren't doing anything. I said they were doing peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. You know, they were going to the shelter on Sunday. Most still are, yeah. Right, and making peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. And I said, we can do more than make peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. And, you know, the question came to me is, well, what are we going to do? And what if they don't want us? I said, well, we'll work with people who do want us. We started having a conversation. What do you need? What do we need to do? And At one point, there was a synagogue who wanted to help go clean up a park in the inner city. And the black ministers who I had developed a very close relationship with said, we don't need you to clean up our park. We need jobs for our people. It was so very clear what they wanted. So we started having serious qualitative partnerships. When the Greater Boston Interfaith Organization came in, which is an industrial areas foundation affiliate, it was very Christian. And they came to us and said, you know, we really want the Jewish community involved. Will you join? And we were the first Jewish organization to sign up. There's now so many synagogues that when we have a big action, they have a big action of a thousand people. They're afraid there are too many Jews there because there's four or five hundred Jews showed up. We took on the health care bill in Massachusetts with our parts. We had access to senior level government officials who we knew. And we used that access to advance social policy. So it worked. So I go back to your question. I don't really get it. Because what I tried to do is say, hey, to the Federation, we're a gateway for progressive Jews who, you know, want to give 
Jewishly, but aren't giving Jewishly because they're giving their money. And I'd go to all these events in the inner city and I'd see all these Jewish names that I knew, but no one knew they were Jews. I started going and asking the philanthropists, do you care about giving Jewishly to non-Jewish causes? Yes, of course, they'd say. I said, well, why aren't you giving it through a Jewish lens? No one's ever asked me. Logically, right? you know, it's just the problem is there's a lot of competition and we didn't do a good job of laying a foundation for this happening. So as we became more secularized and as the Jewish community became more accepted and we could serve on the board, don't forget there was a time when Jews not only couldn't serve, women certainly couldn't serve on the boards of synagogues and federations. They weren't welcome. But beyond that, Jews couldn't serve on the boards of the symphony and the museums and the universities. It wasn't that long ago. So, you know, Jewish institutions took advantage of that. But as that changed, then it became much more competitive. You have a prominent philanthropic Jew, they could serve anywhere now, right? So you have to have a compelling reason why they should do it from a Jewish place. So we developed that in Boston. And I think it has stood the test of time. Barry Schrade just retired, but it is very strong. The commitment to social justice and the commitment to Torah and Jewish education is equally strong. They did not take away from each other. They built them on another. You've been listening to It's Who You Know, the podcast. I'm your host, Michelle W. Malkin. Before turning to my conversation with Nancy, I'd like to take a moment to introduce you to the guest for our next podcast episode. David Scheiser is the CEO of the American Joint Distribution Committee, or JDC, who discusses with me his work supporting social services for Jews around the world. From the youth to the elderly, from large to small communities, David shares stories of how this large organization's work has far-reaching impact. Here's a clip from our upcoming conversation. And the leader of the group, whose English was actually terrific, told us the following story. She said, remember that the Seder started on Monday night. The matzah for the homebound elderly was supposed to arrive on Sunday, but it didn't. It came on Monday at about one o'clock in the afternoon. And you might ask why, and the answer is because it's Belarus. <laughs> Things don't always work quite the way they're supposed to. So my colleagues in our welfare center, our Chesed Center in Bobrovsk, were panicking. How do we deliver 300 boxes of matzah in just a couple of hours? It didn't seem possible. But of course, the elderly people needed to have it. I mean, that's what we do. So they had the very good idea of calling the head of this youth group, Active Jewish Teens. And the group, it was not planned. They didn't know they were going to be asked to do this. But on no notice, they dropped everything. And 30 kids each delivered 10 boxes of matzah, mostly on bicycles. And I think the fact that they were willing to do that is pretty remarkable. I hope that young people in our country would do it. I'm not altogether sure they all would. I thought it was especially beautiful that they wanted to tell us about it and that they were so proud of it. So the point is, part of what we want to do is care for needy people today. Much of what we want to do is to build the kind of vibrant, committed Jewish community so that people will be doing this for themselves and for their neighbors as the years go by. Be sure to listen to the rest of my conversation with David in our next episode of It's Who You Know. But for now, back to Nancy. The sense that I get generally is, you know, JCRC's works are, you know, you talked a little bit about the community engagement side, right, and being involved with other minority communities. And then there's the policy side and the organization over the politics. As we become more polarized, 
the organizations decide, you know, is it worth us trying to get people to take a stand on X policy in fear of alienating donors or community members that, you know, don't feel that same way. And so they've kind of thrown the baby out with the bathwater, if you will, and said, well, we're not going to take a stand on anything. We're not going to organize anybody on everything. And we're going to leave that to other organizations to do. So I'd love to hear about what that transition was like for going from a, you know, very localized, you know, both policy and community building into leading this larger national organization that is not shy about its purpose or its stand or the Jewish values that it does its work under. It was a great opportunity and relief in a lot of ways. I mean, the the nice thing at JCRC was that when it came to issues on domestic policy, so gay marriage, we took a position on, we took a position on justice with janitors. I mean, we really actually were really out there on domestic. It was on Israel policy that it got very tricky. Mm -hmm. Particularly the last five years of my job, which is probably why ultimately I decided that Maybe, and I'm a centrist, I'll be honest with you. You know, I'm not an ideologue. I didn't come out of the left world. I didn't come out of the right world when it comes to Israel. I'm a centrist. But what I saw happening in the Jewish community was, it was deeply disturbing. And it was, I said, there were donors who came to power who knew not Joseph. There were donors, particularly in the Boston area, who'd come out of hedge funds. It was this whole new industry of people who really hadn't grown up on Zionism and labor Zionism and really hadn't. And yet they had decided that, quote, one of them, they're coming to kill our children, Nancy. What are you going to do to stop the mosque from being built in Boston? Wow. That was kind of the verbiage. And that got kind of ugly and was really awful. The worst part of it was, for me as a JCRC director, I left with my integrity intact, so I'm proud of that was that I really truly believe that we had to be a community. And if you're a community, you have to represent everyone. If you're going to represent everyone, everyone has to have a voice. And that meant the Chase Group was on my board and APAC was on my board. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't always easy. But if you then have donors making decisions about policy, then you start getting into a problem because you have to trust you know, a sense of community. So the opportunity to come to an organization that was clearly progressive and knew it was progressive and didn't have these debates, I wasted so much time and energy just trying to keep everyone together, you know, and, and stop this. The other thing that I think was tragic overall, not just in Boston, but across the Jewish community, was that we didn't allow those voices to be heard. So young people started getting alienated. Why? Because they weren't allowed to disagree. And if someone disagreed, they were a self-hating Jew. And I'm talking about people who love Israel. I'm not talking right. about, I've been to Israel 52 times, and someone would accuse me of hating, I mean, I love Israel. Doesn't mean I can't be, I can be critical of my own government. Why can't I be critical of the government of Israel? Mm-hmm. But you could. And it was sort of this lift of steps. And I think we, you know, I think a lot of people would say to you that we went too far. We took it too far. We were too afraid. And of what? Of what? You know, of anti-Semitism? There is problems. Our wonderful Israel has issues. Our wonderful United States has issues. Yes. So coming to NCJW allowed me the opportunity to, first of all, focus, which was a wonderful thing because JCRCs, you know, work on a lot of issues. I tried to focus us the extent possible, but they work on a lot. You know, it's a huge portfolio. Right. So I was able to focus on economic and social justice for women, children, and families, which is deeply in my soul. And I was able on Israel to focus on advancing gender equality, something that I care deeply about and not have to get distracted by the noise. It's not that we don't care. We do care. It's not that we don't take a position. We have a position on two-state solution and, you know, we will weigh in when necessary with people being detained at the airport, et cetera. But mainly our focus is on advancing social and economic justice for women, children, families in Israel and in the United States. So that was great. That was a great opportunity. 
taking a, an organization like this, it was really a turnaround. It's an organization that for many, many years until I got there, I was the first CEO in 125 years. They had, had internal administrators. Wow. And so the board ran the show. It was an operating board, similar mm-hmm. to Hadassah. Hadassah still is today. You know, when, it's a tough place to be. <laughs> that's right. And they made a decision about 10 years ago that they wanted to be a governing board, not an operating board, and got very serious about it. And that's why they decided to hire a CEO. I feel that was great, and they gave me the room and the ability to put together a team and begin to build an organization that you know could be nimble. It's complicated because our chapters are independent 501c3s, so there's mm-hmm. 60 of them. Did these chapters pay dues? Or they pay a national uh, program support, national, we call national partnership dues. We get about a million dollars a year from the collectively from the sections, and mm-hmm. it's based on you know size and numbers of members. And we're a membership organization. We recruit members nationally if there's no section, and then locally through the sections. Uh, we're doing a major membership drive right. But what I found is that while we had a fabulous reputation in CJW, people didn't really understand what it was we were doing. They really didn't understand how we were different than Hadassah or WRJ for that matter. And then there was some feeling, and this was more so in the first six years than it has been in the last two, of is it anachronistic to have a women's organization? You know, as the times changed and should we be something else? Since the Women's March, I have found that much less to be an issue than before. And what do we do, you know, about the current situation where we can't get anything through that we care about? How do you keep people engaged and, you know, feeling hopeful? And we can talk a little bit more about that. So let's talk a little more about that. So you're you're getting the sense of kind of the opposite of engaged and invigorated, the the sense of why bother because everything's crazy and no, I wouldn't say that. That's the sense that I have. No, well, there's compassion fatigue, there's fatigue that has come in and but as you'll see in elections and as we look at the midterms, you're gonna see the outpouring. It can't give up. We have seen our total reinvigoration of our work at the grassroots because people want a place to be able to act on their values and feel so angry about what's happening that people could choose different places. You know, people ask me all the time, what's the difference between NCGW and why don't I just give my money to Planned Parenthood? I say, well, that's fine, but Planned Parenthood isn't a faith-based organization. It's not a Jewish organization. And if you think, you know, Hobby Lobby and some of these rulings by the Supreme Court have anything to do with women's health, they don't. They are all about religion. So the idea of having a faith-based organization like ours that's specifically focused on advocacy around courts, around reproductive justice, around sensible immigration reform, et cetera, makes a lot of sense. If you care. I mean, I've talked to people who don't care so much about the J, but just want to do good work. Fine. But if you care about the J, the Jewish in you know our souls and our work, then we're a great opportunity for women to engage because we're all about engaging from a Jewish place in advancing social and economic justice. And at the local level, if there is an act of NCJW, you can choose between community service or advocacy. I remember when I ran the literacy program in Massachusetts, Boston, my goal was to train tutors to go into the inner city and tutor inner city kids with the hope that then they'd want to influence education policy, right? And make changes. Some did, some didn't. Some just wanted to go tutor those kids every week. So, you know, you want to have a menu of ways of people being engaged. 
I think it's a menu. I think it's a continuum. I don't think, you know, I think different people choose different ways. And so we're able to provide those choices, particularly at a local level. And at a national level, we're able to provide the incredible policy analysis and government relations work to be able to make it possible. We also have a network of state advocates, state policy advocates in 22 states across the country that organize all the sections in a given state and do days on the hill in in the state capitol. Seems like the question that you raised when you first started your work with the JCRC of, well, where are we at the table, right? Where is that Jewish voice in these issues? And if not for caring about that or for not for organizations like yours to have that voice at the table, then they're, you know, people will look back or look around and say thought this was something that was important to them. And, you know, where are they? Why aren't they helping? Why aren't they part of this? So I think that obviously, hopefully for some people that does resonate as part of the reason of doing it. What's been your experience in the kind of genderized part of it? I know you talked a little bit about it in terms of it being a little better since, you know, this Me Too movement and the Women's March, but I can only assume you've gotten pushback as to, well, why do we have to do this as a, you know, a gender specific thing? Yeah, it's very interesting because we're going to be having this conversation on our board next week. You know, we're very involved with the Safety and Respect Equity Coalition that uh, the Schusterman Foundation put together and a number of foundations are supporting, and I'm on the advisory board for that. I have a personal set of feelings about it, and I have a professional set of feelings. Personal is it's about time, you know, it's about time and a feeling of why did it take so long? You know, some of us, you know, have been concerned about these issues for many years, but it wasn't a movement around it. And sadly, it took, you know, some very public cases, obviously, to make a movement. Yeah. Uh, we are we are looking at what our particular role is because these are issues from a policy point of view that we've worked on for years. You know, issues of economic justice, because a lot of it relates to that. A lot of it relates to power. It relates to gender equality in the workplace. It relates to family medical leave. It relates, I mean, there's all kinds of stuff. Right. So we're looking at, okay, what's our appropriate role as a Jewish women's organization? Because it's not about us. What are we going to do about it within our organization? It's going to be, what's our voice going to be in the broader world? So it's an interesting thing. Mm-hmm. And the sad thing is there is, you know, it is cultural. It was a culture that was allowed to thrive and that both professionals and volunteers, you know, were part of perpetuating the culture. And until people started standing up and saying, no, that's not acceptable behavior, and took it seriously. Supervisors, you know, bosses, chairs of boards. It wasn't going to change. It was cute. It was funny. It was your grandpa. It was kind of, that's what Jewish men did. You know, they made stupid comments. I think it's the next big movement. I mean, mm-hmm. the GLBTQ was sort of the great movement of the 90s and the early 2000s. I think this movement is going to make, I really am cautiously optimistic, there's going to be some enormous changes in the workplace. And it comes at a time, obviously, when women increasingly are in decision-making positions. That didn't happen for a long time. When I came into work at the JCRC, 1990, the Federation had a big wall of all their past presidents, chairs of the board. We used to call it the wall of shame. There was one <laughs> woman in a hundred years right. who had been chair of the board of that Federation. Think about that. 1990, mm-hmm. one woman in a hundred years. You know, now there's been several. That to me is a real positive. I think we're going to see a sea change in terms of hiring, in terms of training, in terms of policy. And I'm excited about it. I'm excited to be part of it. I'm excited to be, you know, a voice for change. I think the time has come. 
Yeah, it seems like the sense that, you know, in previous years, women have been in a place where they want to fit in, right? The, if you will, the shoulder pads of the 80s. So you put up with these things because that was your way of being on equal footing, right? Getting on those boards and as you were kind of making those headways. And now it feels like almost the opposite of it. Be like, great, well, we're here and we don't need to put up with this anymore. And what we need to do is stick together. In, yeah, in I mean, it would have been unheard of. I Don't forget, I worked in the 80s in state government, a bastion of Irish refugees, men. <laughs> yeah. And there was this sort of Jewish woman, feisty, and why don't you calm down? You just need to calm down. You know, constantly, like patting you on the head, I had many examples of, you know, situations that were totally inappropriate by supervisors, by men, who, because they could, because yeah. they could. So by the time I got to the Jewish community, the funny story is, I think it was there about four months, Barry Schrag said, I need you to go meet with a donor woman philanthropist, you need to be very aggressive, Nancy. <laughs> and I started laughing. I started yeah. laughing. And I said, Barry, I have never been told in my career, it was like at that time, maybe when I came to work there, I was like 38. So I said, I've never been told in my career that I had to be assertive. He right. said, oh, no, you can't be too assertive in the Jewish world. <laughs> and like the second part of it, I really laughed. And I said, look, I've come home. At least I'm where I belong. About 18 years later, he and I were in a bus, maybe 15 years later, in Israel with a bunch of donors on a mission. You know, I was being the same me. And he gave me a look like, shut up, right? Mm-hmm. And I said, Barry, you told me I couldn't be too assertive. He said, I take it back. <laughs> <laughs> but it was a joke between us, right. because, you know, because I thank God for whatever reason. And someone asked me this recently, I'm sort of a street fighter. By the time I got to the Jewish community, my point is I had been quite hardened and groomed by the Irish establishment. They weren't going to mess with me. You know, they just weren't. But it didn't change the fact that, you know, and I would call people on it. At that point, I felt I had enough heft to be able to do it. Fast forward, that's what I see happening now. I think there's enough heft and enough support of men, too, in the workplace who are not going to put up with it. And it's been a series of building blocks that have gotten us there. But I think it's a brighter day going forward than certainly the last 30 years. So speaking of, what does the future hold for NCJW for your work? What do you kind of see on the horizon? Are there any kind of new things that the organization is thinking about or just kind of in it with the present and everything there is to (laughs) kind of concentrate on? Well, we went through a massive change since the election. We decided to pivot to civic engagement. And then we made a huge, huge decision. We did strategic planning and all kinds of events. We decided to consolidate and close our New York office and move to Washington because that's where our work is. I am transitioning. I'm staying through June, and then I will be transitioning. This is giving us more power, more clout. Yeah, we're not a huge organization. Right. The question is, we can do our work in the field from anywhere, but in order to really have a footprint, we felt we needed to be in Washington and we needed to have one strong office. We are unraveling right now a major membership campaign. If you're a progressive Jewish woman, as you are, I think you should meet the Blanc NCW. You know, you belong to other things. And we're basically making the point like, this is the voice of progressive Jewish women overall. It doesn't compete with anyone else, but we are the organization that is unabashedly progressive, both on Israel and on U.S. policy. And we want to represent the voice of not just Jewish women, because we have many non-Jewish women who, you know, that's the other thing. We're not a synagogue movement. We're a non-denominational movement. We're getting a lot of people who don't identify. Don't identify to a synagogue. And, you know, there's many of them. You know, for $54, you can join NCJW. 
and have a voice and be part of our Washington Institute, which is coming up in April, which happens every three years, which is a huge opportunity to descend on Washington. And in terms of issues, we decided to be hyper-focused on reproductive rights, health, and justice, and the courts, the judiciary, because people finally are waking up to the fact that that's lifetime appointments, and civic engagement. Those are our three major, major, major issues, and our advancing gender equality in Israel. Those are our priorities. That's what we're working on. And that's, I see for the foreseeable future, building our base. We've partnered with Join for Justice, which is a you know, Jewish organizing initiative, to do training in community organizing. We've added community organizing as one of our pillars. So we have education, community service, advocacy, and our community organizing. That come, you know, I'm born and bred. You know, that's what my training was in community organizing. That's what I did in Boston. So I've tried to introduce that to NCJW. And that's become a pillar for us. And we believe that, you know, you don't get mad, you organize. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, you know, despair is not a strategy. That's what right. I said after the election. Despair is not a strategy. We need strategies. This is a democracy. This too shall pass. God knows not soon enough. And we have got to be building for the future. So we are trying to build the base and build women's power. Our big initiative is called Power, the power of organizing women to engage and respond. And that's kind of, we feel the power and the engagement is like really important and making it possible for women to take action in thoughtful and effective ways. Yeah, well, that makes a lot of sense to double down in the policy area and really be in that space and allow your chapters to provide the other pieces and, you know, being the umbrella that provides that advocacy connection. So you said you are transitioning. Are you staying in this role or you, I'm assuming you're not moving to Washington, D.C.? I'm not moving to Washington. I'm going to commute between now and June and then I'll be leaving and they will be hiring. I'm not retiring. I'm rewiring, I like to say haven't quite decided on different possibilities I'm looking at, but I really want an opportunity to take all my knowledge and skills and experience and really try to put it to work to support other women and mentor and coach and really try to see if we can expand this reach that we have. I've I've been very fortunate to have an unbelievable career and, you know, very rich with background and experience. And I feel very grateful for that. Great. Well, let's start your rewiring now. What's some advice that you have? And, you know, normally I say for everyone, but let's talk to the women that are our listeners today. And I'm sure it's equally as important advice for the men, but people who work in, you know, Jewish community organizations in a a variety of different ways, especially we are all working in the same political climate. But yeah, any advice that you have for our listeners in the field? Yes. First of all, know what you don't know and don't be afraid to ask. It's okay not to know everything. And so, you know, you want to be an active learner. That's number one. Number two, find a mentor and find colleagues, find support, find people that you trust and develop, you know, regular support group and that you can talk with and share, you know, frustrations, share successes, share failures, because we all need support and women do that better than anyone. And the men, of course, have always had their networks, but we haven't been so good at helping each other and supporting each other going up the ladder. You know, think big and, you know, have high aspirations for, you know, what can be. There's so much one person can do to make a difference. There really is. And whether it's in your own institution, your own organization, or in the, you know, broader community, that you live in or work in, it just, you know, one, every, one, it only takes one person to make a difference to build a village, as, uh, as Hillary said in her book. 
I would say I think experiential learning is really important. I think education is also important to supplement experiential. I have two master's degrees. I went back twice, one for community organizing and planning, and one for a mid-career in public administration at Harvard, and both were incredibly wonderful, valuable opportunities to reflect and think and you know, reconsider. Also graduate of the Mandel program, and I'm a graduate of the Sela training program through Ben the Ark, formerly Jewish Fund for Justice. I seek out every opportunity I can for, you know, learning, growing. I consider myself a lifelong learner. I don't have all the answers. I've had some great opportunities, but I don't have all the answers. I think women have a very bright future, both in the Jewish community and beyond, because, you know, they're amazing workers, amazing intellects, and you know, know how to process and, you know, understand group dynamics in a way that many men do not. So I think we have some real advantages, both within the Jewish community and beyond. Is there anything that comes to mind when you think about either the beginning of your career with the JCRC or even your time with NCJW? Assumptions you had or things you thought you knew that later on as you kind of grew in those roles, realized it might not have necessarily been the case or how your thinking has changed over the time during your career? I think I've evolved from being very scrappy and competitive in my early years to be much more collaborative in my later years. And I say that because, you know, when you're rising up, you rub elbows a lot and have to kind of fight for your piece of the pie. But now I feel like there's so many incredibly smart, amazing people out there. I just, I want to be, you know, I just came back from the trip that Hyas and ADL put together to the border, San Diego. I was just talking to a reporter earlier before I got on with you. And it was such a wonderful experience to be with my CEO colleagues and us all to be together and sharing the credit and sharing the experience. And I just, I think there's much more comes out of collaboration and competition. Wonderful. So I'd love to hear a little bit about what you employ in your life as far as any tools or techniques, thinking about your mentoring future, what you might Tell somebody about keeping a balanced life, you know, making sure you have time for friends and family Mm -hmm. and not just all work all the time. What are some ways that you do that in your own life? I actually, believe it or not, got much better at that when I moved to New York. I think that's, it's an irony. People were worried about that. I've always believed in vacations and I've always believed in having balance. People always thought I was a workaholic. I really wasn't. When I worked for Mike Dukakis, he went home at five o'clock for dinner. So I said, well, I can go home at five o'clock. At that point, I had a very young child. And then I would, after she went to bed, I worked, you know, mm-hmm. so I was able to balance it. I had a very supportive husband for 35 years. We were married 35 years and we're not married anymore, but we were married 35 years. And, you know, he was willing to do a lot of the at-home kinds of stuff, which was helpful. And since I moved to New York, the problem was for me in Boston, particularly in the Jewish community, is that I was living in the shadow of a charismatic leader as head of the Federation who was out, Mm. you know, six nights a week. So I was out five nights a week. And when you're in a small community, it's very hard not to because every night someone else is being honored and you know someone else, another dinner you have to go to. It was really hard. And I was living in the suburbs and commuting, so it made it even more complicated. When I came to New York, believe it or not, and took on the national organization, it became much more balanced because... When I was traveling, I was traveling, but it wasn't, I could have a life because, you know, national organizations operate basically Mm -hmm. sort of, you know, I I work at home and, you know, I operate in a different way. You're not going to an event every single night. 
And I, thanks to the wonderful Rachel Cowan, who unfortunately passed away last week, one of my wonderful mentors and Mm -hmm. friends and beautiful human beings, I got involved with mindfulness. I've I've been a meditator since 1972, TM, um, which has been incredibly helpful, Uh, not always as regularly as I would like, but she introduced me to mindfulness practice through the Institute for Jewish Spirituality. Mm. And I'm a big believer in combining Jewish spirituality with social justice, which we haven't done enough of, and and personal care. And so I went to a retreat the first summer I was here with her and the IJS. And then I went with my synagogue and Rachel and another rabbi on a mindfulness retreat in Costa Rica a few years ago for a week where we did, you know, silence and Torah and study and movement. And it was really quite a profound experience. So I try really hard. It doesn't always work, but I try really hard. And then I really try to take time. I mean, I hear from a lot of people, I can't take vacation. I can't take, it's almost like we monitor ourselves. Right. And, you know, I sort of kicking myself and feel like I should have done more exotic vacations the last several years. But I always take vacation. I always take time in the summer. I think you need it. I think you need to recharge your batteries. I think in this work that we do, we need some time to pause. I have wonderful friends and family and really enjoy spending time with people that I love. So I think I'm pretty balanced life at this point. And have you been able to bring any of those things into your work with your staff, any of the mindfulness stuff? Interesting question. Not enough. Something I want to do. It's something I've talked to some of my mindfulness colleagues, IJS. I mean, I don't think there's been enough done in the social justice space. It's something I've talked to the Jewish Social Justice Roundtable about. It's something Sela teaches, but I don't think systematically we've done enough of that, you know, as a network. And that's a problem. I mean, preaching it is one thing, practicing it is another, but I think we need to do more. I I see it as a serious burnout issue. Well, wonderful. We've covered a lot of ground in your personal journey and your work with the JCRC and NCJW and a bit about your personal life. Is there anything that we haven't touched upon that you wanted to mention um, or anything you wanted to go back to through our conversation? The, The one piece of personal that I would share that I didn't, you know, I always say you pay now, you pay later, you pay sometime, but for some personal adversity, I've had very early challenge. My father dropped out of a heart attack when I was six and a half and left my mother to raise three children under the age of nine alone. And I think that experience has profoundly influenced my pursuit of justice, my feeling about fairness and equity and there, but for the grace of God, you know, that, you know, just an understanding of things happen to people that are beyond their control and affect the rest of their lives. Mm. I think that's why I was so emotional at the border when seeing children taken away from their parents. I kidded at my going away dinner at the JCRC seven, eight, almost eight years ago. You know, I I shared for the first time, I'd never shared publicly that I had grown up a few blocks away from where the dinner was. I said, you know, I really was a poster child for the Federation. You know, I never knew what the money side of the Federation, what I knew was my mother was helped by Jewish Family and Children's Service. My brother had a big brother from Jewish Big Brother. Mm-hmm. My sister had help from Jewish Vocational Service. I had scholarships to camp in the JCC. Right. I went to Israel with BBIO on a scholarship. I mean, it, you know, you go down the list of the Jewish community institutions in terms of supporting. And we were like the poster child. I knew nothing about the philanthropic end or the giving end. And I was kind of blown away when I came into the Federation and said, oh my God, look at all these generous people who made all that happen. Yeah. And look at the community that was built that supported me 
And, you know, people like me who, you know, again, were just middle-class folks trying to, you know, make it in life. It sort of stuck with me. I think that's what drives me a lot around the women's issues and social and economic justice for women and balance and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, my life issues. And because I saw my mother just, you know, struggle. It's awful. I mean, she just was a woman who had planned not to work out of the home, had been trained as a dental hygienist, had to go back to work, did not want to go back to work, was miserable about it. Yeah had to leave us. I mean, it was, and then, you know, the extended family, unfortunately, my grandparents lived upstairs and that made a huge difference. So probably why I'm so close to my grandchildren, I guess. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) But it's, I have three grandchildren who live 19 blocks away and a daughter and a son-in-law. So that's really been a a wonderful bonus here in New York. Yeah, that's wonderful. That's a great example of not ever really knowing the ripple effects of, you know, philanthropically what you do or work what you do, right? No one who provided that money to allow you to go to camp could have assumed the way your life was going to take you in service to others. So that's wonderful to hear. Well, thank you so much, Nancy. Thank you so much. As someone who has a particular personal passion for politics, I've often looked for a place where I could combine my love of Judaism with my advocacy passion. In this effort, I have found fewer and fewer places where the Jewish community invests itself in local community politics to be the progressive Jewish voice at the table. The fear of alienating donors and the complication that comes with taking a stand on difficult issues often keep community organizations from engaging in this work. NCJW, under Nancy's leadership, has emerged as a go-to place for Jewish women of all denominations to learn how to be advocates and policy change makers. So much so that they've chosen to move their headquarters to Washington, D.C. to double down on these efforts. I applaud and congratulate Nancy on her accomplishments through her career and wish her the best of luck in the next stage. This program is funded in part by the Jim Joseph Foundation. Our editor is Nick Bowden of Bowden Sound, and our fiscal sponsor is Jewish Creativity International. You can find previous episodes, guest bios, podcast articles, how to start your own podcast, and more on our website. It's whoyouknowthepodcast.com. This is your host, Michelle W. Malkin. Thank you for listening and have a wonderful week. Thank you.